This is very effective. <laughs> My wife would probably like to have a set of these at home. Did you just? Good morning. Uh, and except for those of you who are at home watching, would you please check to make sure that your phone is not going to ring during our time? Um, you wouldn't want to be, i tell you what, let's make a deal. If your phone goes off in class, you get to come up and finish, and we go home. Okay. Our notes are here, so they should be fine. <laughs> How are you doing? How's it going? How's your daily spiritual practice going? You know that you shouldn't lie in here. <laughs> wow. So I have on an announcement slide the wrong date for the uh, Ordinary Life Christmas party, which is this. Friday, not the 16th, but um, the 15th. The 15th. Be the Friday the 15th at Anderson Fair at 6:30 until, and uh, <clears throat> usually we have music and a great time, and I hope you will be there. I hope we'll we'll have uh, we'll have a good time. Who knows? There might even be magic. Light up shoes. I, I think I know where my light-up shoes are. I should wear them. And an ugly Christmas sweater if you have it to, to wear. <laughs> so it's always a, a good time. So let's uh, begin as we do in silence. Just take a deep breath or two. And uh, if it helps close your eyes, you can do that. May grace be in our heads and in our thinking, grace be in our eyes and in our seeing, grace be in our ears and in our hearing, grace be in our mouths and in our speaking, may grace be in our hearts and in our understanding, and may grace be at our ends and at our departing. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are celebrated, celebrated here. here. Okay, so <clears throat> it came to pass in those days that there, you can finish this. <laughs> it came to pass in those days that there went out, a have you not seen a Charlie Brown Christmas? And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. I thought until just then that the vast majority of people in the Western world are familiar with those sentences, probably because of this, Charlie Brown Christmas, or probably because you come to a Christmas Eve service or a, lessons of, uh, a service of lessons and carols, and you hear this is the last gospel lesson that's read right before the homily or the big anthem or communion or whatever. It's from Luke, and uh, it's very, very popular. Um, 
we know that nativity scene. The other very famous one is um, Twas the Night. Before Christmas. Before Christmas and all through the house. Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. Generally credited to um, um, Clement Moore, but there's been some controversy about that since then. And you can look that up on the Wikipedia. Found out that somebody else's family actually said that Clement, Ford, Clement Moore didn't write it. The, and we're going to talk about Santa Claus next Sunday because he's actually based on a character, uh, Nicholas, who uh, was from Turkey, who was actually at the Council of Nicaea. And it's on Nicholas that the character Santa Claus is based. And um, Wait, for real? Huh? He was at the Council of Nicaea? Mm -hmm. I thought that you were joking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, 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 yeah. We actually went to where um, some people in Italy went to Turkey and stole his bones because God told them to. Yeah. And brought That's them back right. to Italy. And yeah. there's this huge Nicholas festival in Italy uh, every year. The festival With of St. Nicholas. Mm. Yeah. So they're a regular guy. Santa yeah. Claus, you know, comes from. Uh, Coca-Cola, that's the image. <laughs> Seriously, Coca-Cola marketing company uh, put out a, a first image of Santa Claus that we have that was made. Um, um, so these are the fir first best known lines of Christmas thing. The other one, which I'm gonna reference next Sunday, uh, you will know is um, Marley was dead to begin with. <laughs> Marley was as dead as a doornail. Remember that mm -hmm. from uh, Christmas Carol by Dickens, which has an interesting, um, interesting story by itself. So I'll do that. So at any rate, the vast majority of people in the Western world are familiar with the birth stories of Jesus, which is probably the most influential, significant birth story in recorded history. I mean, after all, we divide the whole world divides the calendar, except the Jewish calendar and the Islamic calendar, but we, div we divide the world into B.C., which is before Christ, although we now use before the common era to be more ecumenical, and then uh, A.D., Anno Domino, which is in the year of our Lord. Um, so everybody knows that, however, as with so much, how many people really know the story? We only have two versions of the Christmas story, the birth story of Jesus. One is in Matthew, one is in Luke, and they could not be more different. And yet they get squished together in Christmas pageants every year, and some things get put into them which are not into the, in the original story whatsoever. Name one thing that, that's in the Christmas pageants that we see that's not in the Christmas story. The first obvious thing. Camels. There are no camels in the, in the original story. Go read it. Read it for yourself. As a matter of fact, it, no, it takes you five minutes. To read in Matthew, which is the very first of Matthew, and in Luke, Luke holds off and gives the birth story after John the Baptist for reasons that we will talk about. But these stories touch something so deep within us, yearnings, 
for light and darkness and hope, and particularly in, in these times. And um, so as someone who speaks from and teaches from the Christian tradition, my question is, how do we hear these stories? How do we read these stories? How do we interpret these stories? How we do these things really matters. So I had this, it turns out, extremely overly ambitious idea that we could correct this problem in two classes. <laughs> that was wrong. So I had a professor in seminary, uh, actually an Old Testament professor when we were doing the Psalms in a graduate seminar, and he said, there are passages of scripture that are so safe, you can let a child wade in them like a wading pool, and they will enjoy it, have fun, be refreshed. And those same passages are so wide, so deep, so profound, that even our best scholars have not plumbed the depths of them. And those, these stories that we are about to deal with are like that. So if you want to do what I thought we could do in two weeks, <laughs> I really encourage you to get this book. You can get it on Kindle, you can get it in a hard copy. It's by Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan. Both of them have spoken here. Borg, uh, the book has Borg's signature all the way through it because Borg is a professor or was a professor and he writes professorially, but it's really accessible. It's really easy. It's very, very fun to read. And I recommend that yeah. to you to, to get and read. And this, then you'll have, if you do that, you'll be, better understand what's gonna happen in here today, next Sunday, and the first couple of Sundays after the first of the year. You have, January 6th is really the close of Christmas, so you'll be fine. Actually, wasn't Jesus born closer to March 3rd? In April, they think, or in the springtime, yeah, see, probably. Yeah. yeah. I was just using my birthday as a reference point. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could be. It could be. So Bill loves to talk about biblical literacy. Have we heard that before? And I'm doing you the favor of covering that part. Um, I really like to talk about biblical symbolism and how metaphor is really rich in these stories. This, this is what I think great, makes a great myth, is that a child can understand it, and it's so deep that we can continue to understand it. There's a, a useful practice that we can use together here, and that you can use on your own, which is a process of active imagination called Visio Divina. And in Visio Divina, it's a way of looking at images and imagining yourself in the image, so looking at artwork and imagining yourself a part of it. And there's three stances, there's probably more than three stances you can take, but I'll offer that you can take the stance of actually placing yourself inside of the artwork. Who are you in it? Where are you in it? Are you an observer? Are you one of the people in it? Are you the maker? So that's the second stance would be the maker of the artwork, the artist itself. And then of course we can also be the outside observer standing outside of the painting or sculpture and, and seeing ourselves interact with it that way. So this, we're gonna go through this process of learning about the Christmas story symbolically and invite you to put yourself into the nativity scene based on the cast of characters that we've drawn from today. But before we get there, I'm going to read another story uh, to, set this, to set the tone. It's about our kind of composite fear of dark and light 
of birth and death and what they each have to teach us about. And they're both obviously transformative. There's so many stories about beginnings that point us toward trying to really understand our origins and understand even going back to the first moments of time. Cosmologically, each of us has carbon in our bones from the Big Bang. So we have all of history inside of us. So naturally, we want to figure out how did it all begin? And the birth story of Jesus is just one illustration of a beginning. We also have the ability as humans to create things that will be experienced by future generations. So we look back, we want to understand our beginnings, but we also create opportunities, experiences for the future, for our descendants. And we simultaneously hold these two in our, in our bodies. And our religious stories are ways to speak about our evolving understanding of, I think, what it means to be human. So here is the story that we'll begin with. It's called Conversation in the Womb, a Parable of Life After Delivery. In a mother's womb were two babies. One asked the other, do you believe in life after delivery? <laughs> the other replied, why, of course, there has to be something after delivery. Maybe we are here to prepare ourselves for what will be later. Nonsense, said the first. There is no life after delivery. What kind of life would that be? The second said, I don't know, but there will be more light than here. Maybe we will walk with our legs and eat with our mouths. Maybe we will have other senses that we can't even understand now. The first replied, that's absurd. Walking is impossible and eating with our mouths, that's ridiculous. The umbilical cord supplies nutrition in everything we need. But the umbilical cord is so short. Life after delivery is to be logically excluded. The second insists, well, I think there is something and maybe it's different than it is in here. Maybe we won't need this physical cord anymore. The first replies again, nonsense. And moreover, if there is life, then why has no one ever come back from there? <laughs> delivery is the end of life. And in the after delivery, there is nothing but darkness and silence and oblivion. It takes us nowhere. Well, I don't know, said the second, but certainly we will meet mother, and she will take care of us. The first replies, mother, you believe in mother? <laughs> That's laughable. If mother exists, then where is she now? The second says, she's all around us. We are surrounded by her. We are of her. It is in her that we live. And without her, this world would not and could not exist. Said the first, well, I don't see her. So it's only logical that she doesn't exist. To which the second replies, sometimes when you're in silence and you focus and you really listen, you can perceive her presence and you can hear her voice calling down from above. Oh, that's just beautiful. That's wonderful. Great story. It is a good one. Yeah. <clears throat> So there are two things that I would like to emphasize about the nativity stories, the birth stories of Jesus. And, for, and the first is um, they are, first of all, very, very powerful political statements. Now, this does not get emphasized in the nativity plays that we see, 
but I make this first because that is certainly the point that Luke makes and wants to make in his story. And it also was one that, that Matthew makes, although Matthew is more oriented toward a, a revision of Jewish theological understanding, which you'll hear more Holly talk more about today, about how that interplays with what it means to be the king of the Jews, who is the real king of the Jews. Um, we can't go into all the political ramifications. We're going to hint at some of them. Um, the, the conception of Jesus, particularly the divine conception of Jesus, was created to uh, transcend the conception story that had been told about Caesar and about others at the time. They wanted to make Jesus' conception exceptional so that it would outdo everybody else's conception story. And where doctrinal Christians get this wrong is by emphasizing the biology of the mother. This is not about the biology of the mother. That was never their emphasis. The emphasis is the theology of the child, not the biology of the mother. But you know that we make it now, the fundamentalist claim is, you believe in the virgin birth? That's not the point, because the virgin births were a dime a dozen at that time. The point is having something to do with this child, not with, with Mary. So again, the theology of the child is what matters. If you go back and you read the Hebrew scriptures, and you read the introductory to um, where, where John the Baptist has, his mother has kind of a, a, a miraculous conception story. Barren women played an important role in the history of Jewish theology. Sarah was barren when, Abraham, when she and Abraham uh, conceived a child. And, and during the time of Jesus, conception by human and non-human creatures was common. I mean, a snake gives birth to, impregnates a woman, and they have that divine interaction. Um, I heard, first heard uh, John Dominic Crossan say something uh, at a meeting that I've said a number of times in here, but he and Marcus Borg say the same thing in the book that I just referenced, and I want to read it to you. It's unwise to imagine that those pre-enlightenment ancients told incredible histories which we post-enlightened moderns have learned to deride. It's wise to realize that they used powerful metaphors and told profound parables which we have taken literally and misunderstood badly. So these are powerful political statements. That's the first thing. Second, these stories are an invitation to the hearer to have an intimate relationship with God. So they're powerfully political, they're political, and they're personal, those two things. Um, several years ago, I presented a dream to my spiritual director, and um, she said that one way that I could interpret that dream was to see it as an invitation to have a more intimate relationship with God. And as a seven on the Enneagram, I have driven 
many therapists, counselors, and spiritual directors to give up their profession. <laughs> because I keep asking at the end of the end of the session, like when Sister Lois said, you need to work on having a more intimate relationship with God. And I said, okay, how do I do that? What do I do? I wanted something to do. That's the seventh thing. And she suggested that I do something akin to what Holly just said about uh, Visio Divina. And she said, I, I suggest that you get this particular icon. This is one of the most famous icons of Mary and the baby. It's called the Blue Monada. And use that in your meditation practice as a contemplative. You know, icons are things you don't look at, you see through. That's what they mean. So we're going to take you uh, through some of the parabolic teaching. Uh, and this is all Holly's work. And I'm going to sit here and make some random tiny comments. And you will get to see uh, this woman at work. So you know what I think is so funny about most of the paintings of Jesus and Mary or the Madonna is I was, so I was an art major in undergrad and you're required to have as much art history as you are art practice. And in the days uh, of Renaissance and before, um, artists could not draw children and they could not draw women. So male, models were always male. So if you notice that the faces of Jesus always <laughs> look like little old men, uh, it's so funny to me because there's always this kind of very stately Madonna holding this very scrunched kind of face of a baby Jesus. They, so they're a bit comical in my mind. There's, <laughs> there's, a, there's a hilarity to it, but Michelangelo was the first artist to, he, he was given permission illegally by a monk to go into where the cadavers were held. And he would study the bodies. He cut them open and studied how ligaments moved and all of this, and that's how we attained this sort of perfection of drawing the human form. And I think he also illegally drew women, but I'm not sure. Anyhow, so these two nativity scenes in Matthew and Luke are extremely different. We're going to pull on some of those threads that exist in both of them, but are also, and there may be more, one may be more prominent in one than the other. Before introducing our cast of characters, I'll say a few things that struck me about each of the stories. In Matthew, there's this emphasis on dreams and their significance to our spiritual awakening. It's through a dream, for example, that Joseph understands his role in the birth story and how he's invited in. I would think that before this dream, the indication is that he was struggling with the acceptance of Mary's pregnancy, given in his own social status and given the, what was at risk for both of them. In Luke, I loved the attention to the feminine. With every male or masculine figure that was presented in the story, there's an equally powerful or significant feminine figure. Matthew's more male dominant because you mentioned that it's kind of more obsessed in a way with Jewish lineage, with the, with the patriarchal limit, lineage of the male line. So reading these two stories back to back made me realize how over large we've made this nativity story and it's so significant in our imaginations within our culture. In reality, they were probably written well, not in reality, they not were probably written after Jesus' birth. They were written after Jesus' death. So in, this, in his dying, in this creation of a religion around this figure, his birth needed to become equally magnificent as the death. Both 
um, Crossan and Borg assert that the parable around this event was established long after Jesus' death. It was, would you say about 100 years, when the 70 to 100 years? That's the literacy part. You'll get to that. Well, and, and yeah. I, would, I would go further than that. I would say that um, the Gospels were, of course, they were written after Paul, or yeah. the original writing, the, the genuine writings of Paul. The stories that are collected that became the Gospels were in existence before the Nativity stories. Mm -hmm. And I didn't stress strongly enough that the Nativity stories were composed pro after the Gospels were, after the narrative was pretty well in place. And they're composed as a parable and a preamble for what comes. Nativity story in Matthew and Luke is a prologue. Actually, in, in the first Christmas, they call it an overture, like a musical overture. You hear an overture before the symphony. Mm -hmm. this is the, these are overtures for what's to come. Right, right. Written after the fact. Written, well, <laughs> that's what we think. Yeah. We don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. So I've, I'm definitely guilty of having held a mashup of these two stories in my imagination. There were camels, there were sheep, there were goats, there was a king uh, who was angry. There, in there, so I have this mashup and we've created a story that we retell and tell and tell. So as we go through this, I'm going to issue you again this invitation that requires you to place yourself inside of the story. As we introduce the characters and tell about their, their personalities maybe or their characteristics and their symbolic roles, in the story, consider who you most identify with in this moment. I assert that each of us has all of them operating in us. At any given time, in different situations may require us to lean more into what some of these characteristics than another. But consider who you're identifying with today and who you might aspire to identify with. So first, there's the angel. The messenger. That's her kind of archetypal role. She, I love that she starts by saying, do not be afraid, right? <laughs> You've been impregnated by the Lord. No, Mary, wait, come back, come back, come back. You know, really, it's okay. <laughs> if I were Mary, I'd be like, what? Uh, so actually, this angel had to be so clear in her message so as to engender Mary's trust. She had to engender Mary's ability to stay in the room with her. It's an incredibly important role. You know how you receive a message has everything to do with how you respond to it. There's a whole joke about that, about two brothers and a cat. Do you know that joke? I will not tell it. I'm not going to tell a joke. <laughs> I'll tell you later. Okay. <laughs> okay. This, but this. <laughs> I need a new joke. Okay, I'll tell you later. Anybody would tell you. I know, you do. I, I'll tell you. <laughs> I have to remember it first, which is why I can't tell it right now. So anyhow, so this message is, this, is the energy. She's the life force behind the whole story. She really calls it into being. You could say she's almost like the Big Bang. She carries forth this, this, this information and initiates the process of transformation. I'm looking, of course, again, at the birth scene as a symbolic one that takes place on both a cosmic, a grand level, and on a deeply personal level, and everywhere in between. So I, I, want, to, I want to say a word about angels. Oh, can I say something about Mary first? Sure. Okay. Oh, no, go ahead, actually. No, go. You go. Yeah. Mary comes first. <laughs> okay. So 
Mary, the messenger, of course, has to seed her message into a vessel, which is, of course, Mary. I had so much fun making these little memes, by the way. Yes, I made them. <laughs> this took longer than the writing. <laughs> and so Mary is the container. Mary's the receiver of the message. She's the mail carrier, right? She's got this big, bulky bag of message that she's got to carry into the world. I love Botticelli's version of the Annunciation. This is literally Mary's like half out of the scene, like, oh no. <laughs> you know, she's trying to leave the painting. In other paintings of, of the Annunciation, Mary's more penitent. She's more receptive. She's facing the angel as opposed to kind, kind of trying to go, oh my gosh, you can't possibly be serious. But Mary's called to nourish something into being, which requires patience, endurance, in contemplation. I think it's really easy for us to over-idealize the, the nature of the feminine as being all-nourishing, all-compassionate, but she also has a significant role in understanding what it means to endure pain. And any woman in this room who's given birth knows that. Enduring pain and making something out of it, right? So this carrier of the message and her well-being absolutely impacts the outcome of the message. Now so, you can say something about angels. So, uh, <laughs> I just wanted to say a word about angels. Um, angels appear throughout the scripture, and they appear not just in human form, but in all other kinds of form. The, the, anytime there is an angel in scripture, it is a metaphor for the presence and power of God. That's what angels mean, that God is present and God is powerful. So a burning bush in the story of Moses is an angelic representation. I think it is in Numbers, the Old Testament book of Numbers, a guy named Balaam has an, a donkey, and there's a story about Balaam's ass. And Balaam's ass talks in the, in the scripture. You That's just an, wanted to say uh, ass in huh? church, didn't you? That's what I was taught in seminary. <laughs> Balaam's ass is a famous story. Look it up. If you can blame it on the Bible, you can get away with it. Yeah. So anytime there is this presence of, of some, something that interferes from the outside, the most famous angelic appearance in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scripture, is, are the three strangers that show up at Abraham's tent. And this, that story begins, God appeared when these three angels, that's the way that story begins in, in Hebrew. And that, that story, that parable in the Hebrew scripture became a prologue, an overture, as it were, to the Trinity in the, in the Christian theology. That icon of the street, three strangers coming to Abraham is called the Trinitarian icon. So again, to reference both the political and intimate na nature of the story, whenever you have a messenger for God, it represents those two things. God's powerful, intimate presence. Um, and so here you have intimacy in a God who can impregnate a woman very intimate act, and this woman will be called the mother of God in tradition. 
Very powerful, grandiose kind of statement. Powerful and, and intimate. And symbiotic, mm -hmm. right? So God as messenger, God as child. And cosmically speaking, each of us are the message bearers. Each of us bear some of that light from the beginnings that we are to contain and give birth to in the world. So each of us has that role to play. Then in the cast of characters is, is Joseph. I really kind of have Joseph as almost a non-entity in my imagination. In Matthew, he's, he plays an incredibly important part. And in fact, Mary and Jesus are like, and then the baby was born. And that's it. And Joseph is really the premier character. He's the primary character in the story. In the story of Matthew, because he has, he has this decision point. Am I going to accept the reality of this issue and actually move forward with it, or am I going to reject it? Yeah, in, 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 in one story, the angelic announcement is made to Joseph, and in another, it's to Mary. Right. Mm -hmm. So jo Joseph, is this, he, he's a, he has a decisive role to play because he has to choose whether to stay or whether to go, whether to leave Mary and Jesus or whether to protect them. So I identify, maybe for the first time in my life, identified Joseph as a pretty major character that I observed as the protector and um, the, just really necessary to getting this message safely born into the world. And he's also an observer. If you've ever heard of the saying in, for example, in research, a, an experiment can't happen without an observer. Without an observer to the research, we have no results. Joseph is the observer. He is, it's a really important role. In life, when someone can witness or observe us in our vulnerable moments, it validates them. This is what a good friend will do, a good partner, and even a therapist can do for us, is observe or witness our pain or our joy and, and help us live with it, help us transform it. It's ultimately what we hope we can do for ourselves is to become our own inner observer and to protect our own goodness or message or light in the world. This is our Joseph. This is our inner Joseph. So if you are in a process right now of being observed or observing yourself through change, you might identify with Joseph. As the protector, he's the one who responds to the dream given to him and gets Mary and Jesus the heck out of Dodge, right? He, once he learns of Herod's resentment, anger, and fear, Joseph takes action. He moves. This is like very masculine protector of him. Along with Joseph as protector are the animals. And the animals are also witnesses. We might call these animals. Did they go? Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, you, you I stuck some a, camels in. You have a camel I in I stuck there. some camels in just for good old time's sake. So the animals represent our instinctual protection. And in dreams, when animals appear to us, that's our instinct. It's asking us to trust our instinct. So Joseph is kind of the sacred masculine protection observer, and the animals are the instinctual protectors. So I've heard people say, uh, well, I tried to read the Bible, I tried to read the New Testament, but I got hung up on the begats and the begottens. <laughs> know that? So if you read the nativity stories in Matthew and Luke, you're going to hit them, and they're awful. Um, and they're different. 
Uh, it's a genealogy in Matthew that presents Jesus going back to the throne of David because Matthew is written from a Jewish point of view and wants to establish Jesus as being of the reign of David to establish the kind of kingdom that the Jews had hoped for. Whereas Luke takes Jesus' genealogy back to... Have I been with you so long? <laughs> and to Adam. So you've got Jesus is coming as the son of David and as the son of man. So the, those two titles are going to be used for Jesus in the gospels that they will tell later. So you have two very different genealogies. And don't get bogged down in them because um, Ma Matthew wants to connect Jesus to one tradition and Luke wants to connect Jesus with another. And we'll get to John the Baptist sometime. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe not today, though. So next, of course, is King Herod. It's really easy, I think, for me to dismiss my personal identification with King Herod because I don't want to see myself as a villain. I don't think any of us really want to see ourselves as a villain. But he's the one who issues the decree to have all baby boys under two within a certain geographical region murdered. He's the, he is the one who issues this decree to whom Joseph responds and protects Mary and Jesus from that murder. He's so fearful of this prophecy of the next king that he's willing to kill babies to protect his ego. So Herod might represent the ego. We might not become murderers in, in deference to our ego, but I bet each and every one of us have had a time in life when we were afraid of change, afraid of something new. It might happen as we age and we have to let go of our previous iterations of our bodies that once were healthy and young and vibrant. It might happen as our children move out of the house and we have to reckon with ourselves as something other than a mother or father. If we have been in the in-group socially, racially, or politically, and that position is shifting, we have to reckon with that shift. Right? So fearful of change, he might represent this sort of system that might be slow to change, that might resent change. We see that operating in our own politics right now. But Herod is incredibly fearful of this baby Jesus and wants to murder him. So here's an example of how the story is a prologue, an mm -hmm. overture. Uh, Jesus is crucified, and Pilate has... Um, written over the cross, put on the cross, here, and puts it in three different languages. Here's Jesus, the king of the Jews. At the beginning of the story, Herod is the king of the Jews. And so the point is that this character who is being born is going to usurp the position of being the king of the Jews. So that's one of the ways and reasons that Herod is so important. And again, though we don't have time to go into all the details, just keep in mind, these are parables. These stories are not history as we have come to think of it. Um, they needed, the, the writers needed to get the family, Mary and Joseph, into Bethlehem. So they weren't in Bethlehem, they were in Nazareth. So <laughs> what'd they do? And I thought of this idea. There, there was a decree that went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. That never literally happened. Can you imagine if 
this government issued a rule that you had to go pay taxes, not in your hometown, but in the hometown of your father? How much chaos that would result in this country? And so would it any place else. So it was, it was a way, it was a literary device to get the, the, the people in, into Bethlehem. So Herod said, uh, when he found out that there was supposed to be this wonderful, magical child born, well, I know what let's do. Let's just kill all the baby boys. And, and that never happened. What's that a reference to? That's a reference, of course, back to the story of Moses, where Matthew wants to make Jesus the new Moses. And so they have the Pilate story coming in at, I mean, the, the, the execution of these babies at the same time. So these stories are ways that Matthew and Luke have of saying Jesus is going to be the new Moses. He's going to lead his people out of bondage. The bondage from darkness to life, from, from into, into freedom, from death to life. And this character is going to replace the kingdom of, or the empire of Rome, not with violence, but with peace and justice. And uh, that's a critically important part of this, that Jesus will be the rule the ruler of a kingdom of peace and justice, not one of violence. Okay. So to reference back to the story I read at the very beginning, to get us born into the arms of the great mother, right? To sort of know, recognize that we are of this, we are surrounded by it. She is both of us, part of us, and nurturing. So to be born into this, this cosmic sense of this great mother earth. And of course, the whole story centers around Jesus. He is, and archetypally speaking or symbolically, the message, the light, the thing that needs to get out into the world. All of these people, the angel, Mary, Joseph, even Herod, had to be part of getting that light born into the world. You need the darkness, King Herod, in order to birth the light. It could not have been conceived without all of these other players the messenger, the carrier, the protector, and the antagonist, all are necessary. And the birth message really represents the coalescence of all these parts coming into integration of wholeness. So the birth of Jesus is representative of our desires for wholeness, the enfleshment of the message, the thought becomes the thing. It is the, it, Rumi wrote that the bird song begins in the egg. And the whole universe and all of the elements collude to get the bird song born into the bird. The same is true here. There's a mystic poet who wrote, the power that governs all dwelt in a small womb. While dwelling there, Christ held the reins of the universe. The invitation here is to see that each of us are holding the reins of the universe as each of us are held by it. And Jesus is the light of the world, and that light also exists in us, representing this longing for wholeness and belonging. We are held by it just as we hold it. So, oh, I forgot this. They one. are, um, keep going. No, it's all right. Insert. I thought you wanted to do that. I do. Yeah. Do it. Okay. 
This is the way we work offline, too. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so the birth of Jesus, this is a bit, little bit similar to having an observer to, a, to, a, to an experiment, would not be complete without the celebrants, the shepherds and the magi. So the shepherds and the magi, it, it, and, and by the way, I think it's shepherds in Luke and magi in, in Matthew, right? Doesn't in, in, in Matthew the Magi come and in Luke it's the shepherds? Right, I right. think that's right. Yeah. So they, the, these two represent the community of belonging, symbolized here by members of high and low classes. The wise men are more like priests or mystics, said to be really deeply connected to astrology and sort of the workings of the cosmos. They were magicians. Whereas the shepherds are more like peasants and deeply connected to the earth and its cycles. So these two things are coming together. The celebrants represent the bookends of the people who are witness to Jesus' birth and therefore represent the expansiveness of Jesus' message to include all, the high and the low, the earth and the heavens, a complete being. And the message is incomplete without people who can receive it. So... Tidings of comfort and joy. Merry Christmas. Mm-hmm. To all good night. And they're edgy. Tidings of comfort and joy delivered with political power and with a certain degree of edginess. And again, I want to stress these stories are parables. And <clears throat> later on, this, uh, the, these slides will be on the, the website. And you can go and look at Holly's artwork. And you can do the, the Visio Divina thing and rethink some of what we said about when are you hearing? We all are to some degree. We all hear a message of justice and freedom and peace and we put up defenses against it because we don't want to see the ways that we're complicit in creating a world that's not just. We don't want to see that part of us, but we all do. We all are part of it, part of that. We, we also don't want to believe that we're powerful beyond means to be able to do something to create the kind of world that these stories are all about. You've got to wonder and reflect about why was it that when all was going on in this time in human history, the first 300 years of what we now call the common era, that there were groups of people who adhered to these stories and embodied them in such a way that they became a force to be reckoned with. Now, it got co-opted in, in the first part of the fourth century by Constantine, but before that, it wasn't. It was very diverse and, and, in, and very inclusive. These are not factual histories. Um, so um, we're going to close with something in a minute we're going to turn out the lights and we'll show you a video and i want to tell you what you're going to see because i i've thought about this i think it would be yeah. helpful because it goes kind of fast you're going to see a production of a child's nativity play the children the voices that you hear are all children who have got who've been uh, gotten together and conscripted and they, they evidently filmed a variety of children telling their version of the Christmas story, okay? Yeah. 
I got that, you got that part. Then they put adults acting these parts out so that the adults are miming, they're just playing the parts of what the children say. It's a very brief yeah. video, it's less than five minutes. And will never not make you laugh. 